Welcome to another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 23. Last week, we ended chapter 22 with this verse, you are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. And what God, through Moses, is saying is the reason I am giving you all of these laws is that you are not like everyone else. I brought you out of Egypt. I've delivered you. I've called you out. I've set you apart. The word holy means to be set apart sacred. We think of sacred things as maybe a place, a building, an object. But if you are in Christ, you are holy. God has cleansed us. He has redeemed us. He has set us apart. So just like God had set apart the children of Israel, so he has set apart the church to be the pure, holy, blameless, perfect bride for his son, Jesus. So he he is giving all of these things to say, don't live like the world anymore. You are to be my holy people. Don't eat the, the food that has been spoiled. Don't don't eat, and, and it's not about literally what we've eaten, although I'll tell you what, I have never had an inclination to go and eat meat after I've seen wild animals picking apart at it. But, but what God is saying is, it, this is not fit for you. Live as who I have made you. So when we get into these rules and these laws, we say, what's the point of all this? It's God saying to his people, I have made you holy. I have separated you. I have made you special. Live in that blessing. Chapter 23, verse 1. And you have to remember that Moses didn't sit down and write Exodus and say chapter 1, chapter 2. These were added thousands of years later. Now they are helpful. I am thankful because my memory is not good enough to just remember The chapters and the verses help me to remember, so I'm thankful for them. But you have to remember that Moses did not write the book of Exodus chapter 1, chapter 2. Chapter 22 flows into chapter 23. So when it says in verse 31 of chapter 22, you are my holy people, and then he says in verse 1, chapter 23, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Remember the Ten Commandments, don't lie. Also, don't lie to help get somebody out of trouble that they deserve justice. Do not follow the crowd in wrongdoing. When you are giving testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism 
to a poor person in a lawsuit. Hmm, now that's interesting. That's interesting. So much of the law was designed to protect the poor and the marginalized. So much of the law was designed to protect those who had no protection. The entire book of Ruth is is largely about the systems in ancient Israel that God had put in place to protect the poor and the marginalized. Yet, here in verse 2, it says, do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Now, it's not saying that we should show favoritism to the rich or the elite. What God is saying is show justice. Uh, I, there's a sports writer that I, I particularly enjoy. And whenever it's time to talk contract in the major sports, you know, baseball, football, salary cap, whatever, he has a saying. When it's a fight between the millionaires and the billionaires, you root for the millionaires, which means he always roots for the players. That's how the crowd tends to side. Uh, you know, the crowd will tend to side with the underdog. What, what God is saying here is let's say, let's say that there is a lawsuit in a village or there is a, a criminal uh, charge and, and the people say, oh, see, it was, that, it was that rich guy. He was screwing over the little guy again. Well, maybe. And certainly the majority of the law is set up to protect the weak and the marginalized and the oppressed and the opposed. But what God is saying is if you want true justice, there has to be 100% true justice. So the crowd might want to go and stick it to the rich guy. But if if you know the truth, you have to tell the truth. It takes real courage to say something unpopular. There's no courage. You know, you go up, even in this neighborhood that I live in, there's no courage in putting a Black Lives Matter placard in your window. None. There's no courage in that. There's a lot of courage. There's a lot of courage if you're over in like Baker City, Eastern Oregon. There's a lot of courage in putting a, a Black Lives Matter placard up in like, you know, the, the most whitest upper class, you know, part of Mobile, Alabama. There's no courage in putting a Black Lives Matter placard up, you know, in, in, on my street. I mean, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying, let's be honest about it, that there's somebody in another part of the country who has a, a BLM placard up that, that it took real courage to do that. Because here where we live, the crowd is, is all for it. I have a friend um, who, who lives in a, a gentrified, or who lived formerly in a gentrified area of Seattle. And, and he is all for... Uh, Black Lives Matter, but he says, you know what typifies Black Lives Matter in, in my neighborhood is um, somebody forced uh, raise, raise the rent and forced the black people out of the home that they lived in for 20 years, and then flips the house, makes a $500,000 profit, and the new upper middle class white people that work at Amazon come in to the home that they've gentrified and kicked the black people out of, and then they put a Black Lives Matter placard up. That's about as political as I ever get. That's just reality. But the truth is that there's a guy that lives down on Oatfield and Park, and if you're in this neighborhood, you know who I'm talking about. 
and 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 his placards are not Black Lives Matter. But there is a certain amount of courage that you have to respect that he's voicing an opinion that is opposite of the crowd. I can dis I can agree or disagree or whatever, but I can I can the people I respect are the people who who stand firm, whether it's popular or not. I can respect that. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything or whatever. Verse four. If you come across an enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. It's interesting that he uses the word enemy. If, if you know the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you think of enemy, the people of Israel, you might think of the Philistines, you might think of Goliath, uh, you might think of the Babylonians. We're, we're talking about them a lot on Sunday mornings. But enemy here actually seems to be just somebody you don't like. Somebody in your own village, your own tribe, your own community. That, that kid in high school that was always terrible to you. That coworker who always puts you down or threw you under the bus. That family member that, that has treated you terribly or, or has not been fair to you. And what God is saying is, if you're my holy people, you're going to do the right thing. Because while we were God's enemies, Jesus died to save sinners like you and me. And if God, even though we were his enemies, even though we were horrible to him, he came after us and he loved us and he showed us grace and compassion and mercy. He says, hey, you see that person broke down on the side of the road, you help them. Now, there's, there's limits to that. If, if, you, if you were talking about somebody uh, who, who was verbally, emotionally, physically abusive, that's a different thing. But those extenuating circumstances aside, let's be honest and say that all of us could probably say somebody who lives in our community who has wronged us. And God's saying, if you come across something where you could be helpful to them, then live out what it means to be my holy people by loving and serving them. That's challenging. I'm not preaching down to you, do this. I'm preaching the gospel to myself. Love those who have hurt you. Verse 6, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Now remember, verse 3, he said, do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Verse 6, he says, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Justice needs to be truly blind. There should be no favoritism in how we treat people. You see how they dress. You see where they're from. You can see the area code on their phone or the, lice, or the, the zip code on their address. Or uh, you can see the bumper sticker on their, on their car or truck. And I'm going to then tr- 
decide how I treat them based upon these sociological constructs and how I decide I treat people like that. People of faith, Christians, people who believe the Bible is the word of God and we say we want to live out our biblical values and we want to vote for our biblical values. Justice is a biblical value. That's why I've taken the positions I've taken publicly on issues of race and racial tensions in our culture. It's not because I'm trying to align myself or this church with a political persuasion. In fact, quite the opposite. I have no interest in getting us mixed up with politics. But if we have people in our community, and I'll tell you what, this last year especially, but I, I feel very safe in my track record long before George Floyd, long before Charlottesville, that, that I, I, I know I feel right before God that I've been speaking about these things from the pulpit, in my own conversation, wherever it is. But this last year especially, I have had people in our church, outside of our church, Christians and non-Christians, tell me stories of how they have experienced systematic oppression systematic racism. I have talked to people in our church who have experienced non-systematic racism, just they've, they've been, you know, profiled or discriminated against in some way. Whether it's because of how your skin is or whether it's your socioeconomic situation, injustice is not biblical. Justice is a Christian value. And if we limit what biblical values are to just a handful of issues, biblical values are not just abortion. Although I firmly believe that abortion is a, is a wickedness, is an evil in our society and in our culture. I believe that future generations may well one day judge us for the sin of abortion the way that we judge past generations for the sin of, se- of slavery and segregation. But that's not the only biblical value. If, if systematic injustice or uh, oppression or, or these things contribute to why abortions are happening, that's a biblical value too. And it's something that any Christian should be concerned about. Verse 7, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put any into innocent or do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit. Uh, for I will not acquit the guilty. So, God is is trying to establish laws that protect people, that uphold justice and truth and righteousness. There is no biblical basis to be against the death penalty. God includes the death penalty in His law. Yet He He's setting up these things so that you can't take somebody to court so they will get put to death because you have a grudge against them or because you don't like them or because you have a, a thing against somebody from their tribe or their, their background or whatever. At the same time, I, I think I've said this before on this podcast that I personally, it's just a personal opinion. I'm personally, the more and more we learn about the corruption in our justice system, the more and more I'm okay Based off of verses like this, I'm okay with saying, can we put a pause on the death penalty till we get some things figured out? 
That's one of the things that made Jesus' trial so condemning. They could not get two witnesses to agree on a charge. The case was going nowhere. It was an illegal trial. It was done at night. It was not done in public. It was not done properly. There were not the right witnesses. The only reason that they had anything is because Jesus just told them the truth. He said, I am. And I'll tell you, anybody who says that Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus' enemies sure believed that that's what he was claiming. And that was when they tore their robes. And that was where they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the innocent. How was Jesus arrested? On the basis of a bribe. Judas, the one that you kiss, that's the one we'll arrest. Oh, and here's some money. We have to, again, if you're going to want to vote your biblical values, taking, taking that opportunity for corruption out of the system is so important. Incidentally, this isn't what this verse is talking about, but I think it's applicable. It's one of the reasons I work so hard to not know who's giving what to the church, because I don't want my ministry to anybody being at, in any way influenced by whether they are a supporter you know, in, in terms of money or, or, or resources to the church. And we, we take a bunch of steps so that I don't know. Because we've got to keep that sort of corruption out, out of the government, out of the church, and out of our own personal lives. Verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourself know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. If we were to bring this to America today, you yourself know how it is to be a foreigner because I was a foreigner in the land of England. And my great-grandfather was a foreigner when he came to America from Austria. That we are the, the children and grandchildren of immigrants. It makes kids in cages all the more shameful. For six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do, not, do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Six days do you work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. For six years, verse 10, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crop, but during the seventh year, let it lie unplowed and unused. So, this is a principle of Sabbath, of rest. Incidentally, the number of years that the people of Israel were to be held in captivity in Babylon was equal to the number of years that they did not let the land rest on the seventh year. God has established rest as a principle, and we are not bound by a Sabbath day. But rest is how we were designed. Refreshment is how we were designed. 70% of people in America are pessimistic about the future. I believe we need soul care, personal soul health management more than ever. 
And you can look around and see verses 1 through 9 of chapter 23, and you can see bribery and corruption, you can see injustice, and all of these things will bring you down. But to find rest, to find rest in our work, in our personal lives, I believe in those moments of rest, God will bring restoration to our souls. And we will again find ourselves in a place of healing and of hope. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study Podcast. We release new episodes every week. On Sunday mornings, we gather in person and online, 10.30 a.m., faithonhill.com or our Facebook page. Audio versions of our Sunday services and this podcast are available on Apple Music and Spotify. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here at Faith on Hill. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, at Faith on Hill. God bless you. We'll see you again for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.